Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of The Front Lounge, the podcast with the band Congos, who is us talking about stuff. Uh, it's brought to you this week by Bus Call Episode 5. It's on our YouTube channel right now. And uh, go check it out. We go to Russia, uh, Spain, Poland, Ukraine. It's a great episode. And also go to our Patreon page, which is uh, slash Congos, if you want to get an ad-free version of this podcast. And we also put up exclusive content occasionally. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Front Lounge with Congos, the band of four brothers. Today we have very special guests for episode 29. Uh, we have Logan Hall and Sarah Morgan Hall. We like to refer to them as the editing power couple because they have been very instrumental in getting Bus Call finished and made with us. So welcome, guys. Uh, Logan, hey. Hey. Sarah, hey. Oh, hi. Thank you guys for coming on. Um, I feel strange saying that to you because we've sat in the same room and looked at footage of ourselves for literally hours on end. And sometimes I think you guys know us better than we uh, know ourselves. This is ourselves. their very first time on the front lounge, but definitely not their first time in the front lounge. <laughs> yeah. We've been here true. for other recordings of the front lounge, but just haven't said anything. Yeah, yeah. This is true. <laughs> They've been clicking away uh, while we talk to other guests, and uh, we figured it's time now that Bus Call's airing, we should talk to these people on air. These um, people. <laughs> <laughs> so how, how are you guys doing, first of all? Should we catch up? Because we haven't seen you in a while since we've pretty much been done with editing. We're good. Any any news you want to discuss? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, I, Sarah is. We're a couple weeks out from having a baby. Yeah. So Whoa. Sarah's crazy pregnant right now. <laughs> yeah. Mega pregnant. Yeah. Just watch full out. Of baby. Watch out. You don't <laughs> know. This could be the epi- the first episode where we have a baby delivered. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we tried to encourage it. So uh, you guys don't know if it's a boy or a girl. You decided not to find out. But we did. Oh, you did? Oh no, we didn't. Oh, we. <laughs> that's what, what. That is what we decided. <laughs> <laughs> so it'll be a big surprise. Fantastic. Well, mm-hmm. maybe... Uh, Have you seen those elaborate um, <laughs> gender reveal things yes. that people do? Yes. Now they keep getting more and more elaborate. Yes. Yeah. Dude, this they guy, are absurd. The most recent one was so elaborate, he burnt like 100,000 acres in <laughs> Northern California or Southern California. I can't remember where it was. He had, they had a, a baby gender reveal party and something went wrong. Like they had a barbecue or a campfire or something. And there's like tens of thousands of acres now burnt <laughs> down oh that was wow. a plan like the one wasn't that didn't burn would have the color <laughs> <laughs> it was a, the blue flames in, in communist countries they used to do an occupation reveal party when the kid was born it was just what you were doing for the rest of your life <laughs> yeah well ours yeah, our, our gender reveal party will be when the baby comes out and then it'll yeah. be revealed so well well that's we all look forward yeah. to that day yeah, yeah. it's like a yeah. uh, very vintage yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, my sister did it for both of her kids, and it was just really special for the rest of us. I don't know. Yeah, our exciting. parents did it. Our, yeah. yeah. And, uh, you, they, you, you know, another plus is that we didn't get any crazy gendered gifts on the front end. Oh, which, yeah. You, so people, you, you, you can't make that decision or you don't want to assume. Right. And then you've got a lot of returning to do, and that's not what you want to be doing in the first <laughs> weeks of pregnancy <laughs> of a new yeah. baby. <laughs> well, it's funny because some people are, like some people you can tell are a little like frustrated like that they can't buy they're like, well, how, what am I going to get? If, I, I don't know what the gender is. It's like, well, I mean, it doesn't get matter. A, yeah, like, boys, babies and girls care. The <laughs> There's a yeah. lot of unisex baby gifts, or you know, for the, or even for, for the like, most part, people don't. I don't know. I mean, some some new parents do maybe won't, but I think people want 
practical shit. Like, get me diapers, get me wipes. Yeah. <laughs> There's a Tato, Tato, one of our favorite artists in Phoenix, um, Tato Caraveo. He painted a nursery for his friend. And um, the, the mother said, uh, it's definitely a boy. But she didn't check. She, it was just her. Yes. Yeah. So he painted the whole thing blue. <laughs> oh. It's great, great painting. And the baby's going to like it. Like, it, I don't think babies have as much the opinion about color not, as they're not to be do. a girl or? Yeah, it's a girl. Oh. <laughs> but what if the baby's not into like time bending, like, yeah, surrealistic art? Yeah. That, that's the main problem with he, Tato stuff. He tamed it down, it's, but it's a really, really amazing desert scene. I'm always amazed at the quality of. This baby is now going to have this great painting to grow up with in, in their nursery, you know? Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, a lot of people ask if I have a feeling one way or the other, or they, can't, they see me and they're pregnant, and they're like, it's a girl. Like, they know, they know for sure. In grocery stores, I bet. Yeah, or just, you know, all the time, or I think, I'm pretty sure, and Logan brought up a good point, which is like, they have a 50-50 chance. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and the one, they remember the ones that they got right, because they're like, oh, yeah. I knew I knew I'm that one was right. gonna be a girl, but they're not like, oh yeah, I missed that one. It's always I knew that one. <laughs> Nobody ever talks about their gambling the losses. World yeah. Cup for the last four World Cups. Didn't they eat that octopus? I can't remember. Uh, <laughs> what <are> you, <laughs> I think everyone missed what you said. Uh, you an saying? octopus has predicted the World Cup for the last four World Cups. Oh really? Yeah, some you know one of those goofy things. That's because FIFA's corrupt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Was that octopus Sepp Blatter? Because that sounds like it, the name for an octopus. What? The guy that used to run FIFA, Sepp Blatter. No FIFA oh, I, fans? I don't know. Yeah, I, I just know they're corrupt. Oh, That's was it. he the one con- convicted of bribing? And yeah, like, he was, uh, like, he's the worst. No. <laughs> Well, that's as far as our soccer knowledge goes. Uh, the did they kick the ball in the net? Yeah. <laughs> Was it our net? <laughs> uh, so, well, um, guys, episode five came out today. I think you probably both remember this one, although we, for, for a while we thought we were going to have 10 episodes and the numbers of the episodes were all off. So it was 2A, no, 2B, no, it's episode three, no, it's four. Wait, which episode are we fucking talking about? <laughs> um, five is Europe part two. That's how we refer to it. Mm-hmm. Um, now both of you actually worked on this Sarah did the first cut and then I think Logan did a, another pass at it and then we, we kind of looked at it as well uh, anything stand out from you from you Sarah since I guess you you were new to this footage Logan actually shot most of it mm-hmm. so he kind of remembers it first time around and then you having a fresh look at it how did, how did anything you want to talk about she probably combed through it for evidence that Logan was out partying like an <laughs> A wild man <laughs> in Russia. And she's severely like, disappointed. Yeah. I mean, you know, I had heard the stories from, you know, Logan came back and reported to me. And then it is pretty interesting to, you know, have your, he was, you know, my fiance at the time, go out on this trip. And then he comes and tells you about it. And then you, you watch the whole thing. <laughs> the whole thing pretty much. But um, there had, dailies had already been cut. So I didn't have to go pull. I didn't go through every moment. Yeah. So you don't know then. You don't know um, what he got up to for sure. No. And I did. Yeah, I chose not to. <laughs> I mean, it was pretty wild. One time, one day he didn't assemble the shoulder mount. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, it seems basically like there's okay. no time. There's no time for basically anything but working. And that, that was very that trip, evident. Yeah. On, on, a, on other tours, you, you have more time. But on that one, there was yeah. no time. Yeah. But also, when you look through the footage and we're not just saying this because you're sitting here. Logan's footage is exceptional. Like every time we look, we're like, oh, he caught it as opposed to 
two or three of our other <laughs> <laughs> videographers who will go unmentioned. Um, <laughs> you know, just you were so diligent about capturing everything, and you know, well, Jeff, Jeff was, yeah, Jeff was actually he was very diligent, but yeah. he was the opposite. It's like, oh Jesus, I've got to watch five hours to get to what I want to see. Yeah, I, it, it, they, it turned out to be very uh, useful though that he. Never turned the camera off. He caught some oh, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Jeff would caught have been some lost otherwise. Stuff. Yeah, because oh, yeah. there's definitely times. I mean, I remember times where I would be filming something and be a couple minutes, and there'd be a conversation, and I'd be like, ah, oh, nothing's really happening, and then I'd shut the camera, you know, like hit the stop button, and then all of a sudden, like something would happen. I'd just be like, ah, oh, I gotta turn the, do it again. Ah, oh, I missed it. <laughs> I was listening to uh, the Duncan Trussell podcast, and he had Jay Duplass on, or Mark Duplass. One of the Duplass brothers, and they were they produced that Wild Wild Country documentary in addition to a bunch of other stuff they've worked mm -hmm. on. And he was saying that documentaries is it's always happening off camera, the best shit, you know. And that, or, it, it's kind of true. A lot of the scenes we captured. The, my favorite one from the previous episode is when Jason walks off camera to go talk to his wife Mary, and you know just catch up. And it's this really great moment that happens. And you were there, luckily. To catch that moment sober. where he walked off, yeah, yeah. sober, <laughs> the sober one, yeah. But it was like, you know, it was dark, and it wasn't like a, a lit shot where it was all everything was sort of planned out nicely. It's like, yeah, you're just trying to zoom and focus so that you can capture this moment, and that's, I think, that's what he was saying on that podcast yeah. was like the best moments in documentaries are usually a camera swinging around to catch mm -hmm. something that's really happening you know mm -hmm. and, and like in that particular moment is logan obviously isn't going to go follow jason and listen yeah. in <laughs> on his conversation with his wife because jason is his friend and coworker in the situation and this is a private moment for yeah. them yeah he's just but gonna creep in the corner <laughs> but still capture what it's what it was actually like yeah well know? that's that's part of it i mean part of it is also like i do i'm always thinking about like you know, like throughout filming throughout a day, you kind of I, I would kind of pick up on like certain things that were happening, and then I'd, I, in the back of my head, I'd always think about the best way to communicate the story through shots, and that adventure, that drinking adventure in Poland, had been going on for a couple hours at that point. So I was, you know, Jason had been on the phone for a little bit, so I'd kind of been, you know, in my head thinking about planning shots, and when he, you know, walked off like that, it, part of me was kind of thinking about the way to frame this so it feels more intimate between Jason. So it was, you know, it was, a, in a way, it was kind of, I was thinking about it, and it's, I'm glad it kind of came off as spontaneous. I think so. No, it, it, that's what we noticed with, you know, you having such a background in editing and directing, and, you know, we'll get into that a little bit, uh, some of your history and credentials, but um, I think that's entirely evident in your footage is that you've been in the editing room. You know what it takes to cut something into a scene. And so the way that you frame shots, the way you followed the action and all that, you know, made the editing job in a way easier. And I think maybe Sarah, can, you can comment on that, on having looked through all the footage and through the various eras of cameramen that we had out. And, <laughs> and you know, and it's all, a lot of it is us also, the fact that when we started filming, we didn't have an idea of what the show was. We didn't have an intention. We mm -hmm. thought it was going to maybe be like a travel show or like Anthony Bourdain style or, you know. So there was no intent in the capturing. And then as it started to materialize, we, we got a clearer idea of what this show could be and the footage kind of reflected that. So having had to edit all that, variety of footage you know mm -hmm. uh, maybe you have an idea on on the distinction uh definitely the distinction between watching one videographer to another was always very it was pretty clear who 
I was, even though I knew that, I of course knew who was shooting everything I was watching, but I could also tell by the, by the content. And sometimes, you know, we'd get, especially for more, trying to communicate more logistical things like, oh, we want to make sure the audience knows this information, but we don't have someone necessarily explicitly saying it like, oh, we're going to this city now, or this is what's happening with news back home or whatever. We don't necessarily have someone saying it. Um, those were the times where, you know, sometimes we'd have footage of people reacting to things. And then sometimes we would have no footage of anyone reacting to anything. And it made it a lot harder yeah. just to piece together. Yeah. And we, there, there is uh, uh, Werner Herzog. Doesn't he talk about the kind of, he, he thinks there's no truth in documentary making other mm. than the truth that you're trying to make. You know, it's not a literal truth. You're trying to get across something. So there is definitely manipulation. Like when you see yeah. reaction shots, we've got one camera. So right. if you see a reaction shot to something that somebody said <laughs> and it's 180 degrees the opposite direction, that's fake. You know, <laughs> well, but it's just from another part of the conversation. Yes, where, yeah. you know. So it, but it helps because without that, then you you you're not you you're you're actually betraying the truth of what was going on by not manipulating it a bit, you know? Well, the more we worked on this and the more we started to kind of really get into the nitty-gritty of cutting a scene together, particularly a contentious or an argument scene or where there's a lot of information coming across, the more skeptical I became of every other documentary. (laughs) And I was more aware of, you know, uh, every time you'd see a talking head and they do a jump cut or they cut away to something, you're like, oh, this is interesting, they're cutting away to that. And then you're realizing, oh, they're just cutting the sentence to, <laughs> to say what, to they, say want what to say. they want to say. Yeah. Which, like Danny's saying, we did, you know, we've done that. It's, it's edited, but it's, it is, it's what happened. Yeah, we had to convey it in a, however we could. Yeah, My favorite was, thing is pauses, they add pauses. To the yeah. people give you time speaking. to think, of, give people yeah. time to think right. about it. Yeah, and I don't mm-hmm. think nothing was nothing was cut that way to try to manipulate the actual story that was happening. It was to try to tell it, it from just from what I did, and I think what Sarah did. It was try to try to tell the story more clearly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's well, to your guys's credit. You know, you didn't really want to sugarcoat anything yeah. at all, mm-hmm. and that made it, it made it really cool to yeah. work on. And um, yeah. I think that was awesome. I think we've had almost the opposite for a lot of pe- well, people in our business, like our uh, people that work with us on our team have wanted us to sugarcoat things a little more because, yeah, you know, we say some things in there like we lost this much money on a tour and they're like, why are you telling everyone that? Like <laughs> everything's meant to be rosy. You're having the best tour ever and the crowds are gigantic, always. L- living the dream, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I oh, just, think- oh, Sorry, I want to say one more thing. You were talking about that moment. I noticed that... Uh, Jeff, you know, it was his first time ever uh, videoing. He, he's a photographer. And if, eventually in the later May run, as we'll, you'll see in the last episode, he really started to get what you had been doing all along, that he realized he could have some kind of influence on how the scene was going to play out by framing certain things. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to give anything away, but he captured a really important scene in the last episode and then after the fact really had some an artistic touch to just capturing what was going on after this particular scene. I think it was very, very helpful for for um, Jeff to sit. We watched an, an early edit with Jeff of some stuff that Logan has done, and he he kind of sat there and he went, "Jesus, Logan, you know." He was amazed at what what you were able to capture and what we were able to put together with it, and it influenced the way he shot in the future because he's an excellent photographer. Um, but video is a whole different thing, and so 
uh, we saw growth in his footage definitely and and then the other guys Johnny and Goulas were really glad we have their footage too because they got a whole different angle they were they were much more both of them interested in being part of the party than capturing the party <laughs> and uh you know, thank goodness they were because they they missed some good shit. They missed some dramatic shit, but they got a lot of fun, and the show needs an element of fun as well. And we, yeah. although we, Logan did capture the most epic bus party ever. Oh yeah, the uh, ca- we're not even showing this the clips from this <laughs> bus party. The the uh, what, the we were at the runway coming down the middle of the bus, and everyone was doing their performance pieces <laughs> to "I'm Too Sexy" by Right Side. Yeah. Right. I, I think one clip from that made it in, but it's not in context of the oh. bus party. Yeah, <laughs> too expensive to license that song. <laughs> I will say that I've never met Goulas in real life, but I feel like I know him. Yeah, I've spent a lot of time with him, yeah. <laughs> for looking at things through his eyes, yeah. and there are a lot of times where he'd be walking around getting B-roll and be narrate narrating it yeah. for whatever future editor he didn't know who that would be, <laughs> and obviously, like we, it wasn't, it wasn't the his narration wasn't helpful for for the scene <laughs> for for communicating what needed to be communicated in the episode, cool. but it was very entertaining for me. So thank you, Goulas. That yeah, Colton fun. had the same reaction. He's like, I've never laughed so hard at someone I've never met you know before that you your associate not just like a comedian on TV but then also when Adam Jaffe was editing and he was going through and you know pulling selects early on in the editing process he he felt like he got to know all the characters but especially Mo and one time mm. when we were doing a gig and Mo flew in and walked in the door he, Adam was like hey Mo <laughs> totally. he, like, he realized like oh wait I haven't met you before <laughs> I've just been watching hours and hours and hours of footage of you there was an instant connection, yeah, just because he was I, so familiar with him. I feel like that's starting to click with the audience based on the comments we're reading and, and other people that we've shown it to, you know, friends and family, people who don't necessarily know our crew or, you know, know us all that well. Um, we, you know, some friends have said, you know, I feel like I'm there just hanging out with you guys. And that's that's good to hear because it's part of what we wanted to capture. We want there's I don't think I've ever seen a documentary or a show that where you feel like you're living that life or you're at least kind of getting a real window into it in the music on the music side i feel the one yeah, the touring. long way if you uh, those of you out there in the audience if you're listening on netflix is is it still up on netflix the long way around with you and mcgregor so. that was a big influence on the feel we wanted for bus call because that felt like you were just with them yeah so you and McGregor, we've talked about it before i think you and mcgregor and his best friend decided to do a motorcycle trip from europe to america yeah. where they camp and they just they go all the way from London to New York. Yeah, um, they go on uh, a motorcycle on motorcycles, yeah. yeah. They go um through Europe, through Mongolia, through Russia and then they catch a ferry into Alaska wow. and, and then, then ride from Alaska to New York City, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, a it's an incredible crazy, show. Yeah. Uh, speaking of documentaries, I just saw the trailer for that new one Free Solo about that guy Alex, I forget his last At name. Hunnel. The, oh yeah. yeah. Uh climbing El Capitan sans ropes <laughs> fucking hell it, Danny was saying it looks like it's a trailer for a new act like the, it's like the follow up to what was that movie Cliffhanger with uh, <laughs> Sylvester Stallone it's insane yeah it's yeah. it's, it's um, similar to we just watched uh, Meru if you've seen that no, it's another climbing movie that's like they, they, it's the same director yeah yeah um, and they they climb uh, the shark's fin of oh what's the no, I, I can only think of the shark's fin um, but there's I a think mountain it, yeah, <laughs> big one, real big. big. One. That had uh, never been, yeah. n- never been, you know. Yeah, got, it's yeah. a similar kind of thing where it's like, I mean, it just looks 
terrifying. But yeah, I it's the same director and the guy who directs it is like the a photographer and a cinematographer who is the who is also the climber because obviously you can't bring an extra guy <laughs> with you when you're on this so when we were first watching it looking at it oh man just like, like they had to carry their i'm like they brought their cameras yeah to yeah, the top same. of the like top yeah, of this peak they, that's they really they epic have you seen them like you know set up their tent and just hang off the side of a cliff yes. for overnight um, i heard other people amazing. talking about it too and it was the same reaction like your palms are going to be sweating just such a weird thing to be weak, so nervous spaghetti. while watching a something on TV. Yeah. Like yeah. You're in no danger whatsoever, <laughs> but your heart's racing and your palms are sweaty. By the way, the mountain Mom's is spaghetti on your the mountain is called uh, Mount Meru, which is the name of the film that I mentioned. It's in the Himalayas. In the Himalayas. That's what I was trying yeah. to remember the Himalayas. Yeah, uh, I will put a link to that. <laughs> our friend Matt King, who I think you met in Las Vegas, he was out doing merch with us for a while. He's a rock climber, an excellent one at that, and that's why he lives in Vegas. Which I was wasn't that's aware why I of merch. This. Yeah, but if you go just outside Vegas to Red Rock State Park or something, it's apparently it's this uh, mecca for rock climbers around the world. And we went hiking there one day, and it was literally just every boulder was just covered in people, you know, <laughs> trying to go up and and doing these things. And you see people going up when they do those reverse where they're hanging upside down, like it's it's more than ninety degrees, just crazy. And Alex actually comes into their gym every now and then. Uh, that they oh, work wow. at and, you know, hangs out. He, they say he's a super nice guy. He's obviously insane. He's like <laughs> Michael Jackson or something or like Stevie Wonder of, yeah. of yeah. climbing. Right. Um, the Michael Jordan of the Michael Jackson yeah. of climbing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, this is a bit out of order, but why don't we introduce you guys a little bit um, other than just, you know, the editors and camera and stuff on bus call. Uh, I'll... I'll start, Logan. We went. Logan and I went to high school in uh, Arizona, Chaparral High School, two thousand one, mm-hmm. and uh, we've known each other well, throughout school, pretty much since I moved here. And um, Logan, we made the senior video. <laughs> we did. We made our high school senior video. <laughs> yeah, which uh, so, I was told made some of the parents and teachers cry. Yeah, I. No, and for good reason, you know, emotional crying. Yeah, no, yeah, no. yeah. <laughs> Not like I can't turn it off. <laughs> yeah. um, so I feel like, we're, in a way, we we're destined to work together, even though we kind of, you know, after high school, we, you know, we kept in touch, but we, you lived in Chicago and uh, I was still in Arizona. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it was kind of fortuitous that you came to see us on tour, I think, um, sometime yeah. way back when, when we were still in a van, that playing, was at playing the, to three people. Yeah, that was at the Elbow Room in Chicago. Right. Uh where yeah it, and mo was on tour with you guys and i remember your dad was doing sound as well yeah so the van day so he came yeah. and you were like what you were half of our audience i feel like <laughs> and uh we caught up and always in the back of my mind was like you know i knew that you were good at what you did and at uh um, directing camera editing everything in the film world and i'm glad there was an opportunity for you to join us on tour and apply those skills and it also kind of reconnected us as friends and now we're all living in la so it's like one big happy family <laughs> but they um, asked me to do the senior video because of you guys. <laughs> That's how legendary <laughs> it was. Legacy. Yeah. Let's go with that crew again. You know that. Did you do it? No. no. <laughs> it was a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's just I remember because it, it took you forever, and you get, had to go around interviewing people for fucking four months or whatever. We ha- we asked people to send in for photos and videos. So what ended up happening uh, was 
we had like this Dropbox, you know, and every day on the on the like a physical Dropbox, not like Dropbox. Yeah, this was pre-Dropbox. Like this was yeah. like tape years. Yeah. Um, but you did the you did the school news, you and Brian. Yeah. And um, every week they would announce, "Hey guys, if you want to be in the senior video, come and drop your photos and videos, you know, in the office." And you know, so weeks and weeks and weeks, nobody brought shit so so the senior video ended up being us and our friends like all the popular kids all the jocks you know like no one got anything in the senior video yeah. so that was kind of uh yeah, kind we, of fun we put our friend brian's um speech his <laughs> failed not failed it was a great it's a great speech but it didn't make the cut for making a graduation speech at the end of the video <laughs> which you know, yeah yeah he was, else. <laughs> so he didn't get to go on stage at graduation but we we put him in the video and so we that's the power of editing is we were able to now determine the legacy of chaparral yeah. 2001 even though at the time most people didn't know who we were did he take the road <laughs> less traveled or what yeah it was like the past four years of our life have been like the best <laughs> ever <laughs> We look to the future. It's Robert Blake, right? That poem? No, Frost. Of Robert Frost. Robert Blake's the guy who killed uh, people. Uh, Well, well, Robert Frost has killed a lot of people with that poem. If you read a bunch of other Robert Frost, though, it's it's good. No, I know. I was going to say the poor guy who writes a poem that connects with so many people that he's, he's now the graduation thing. Oh, yeah, right. like poor Green Day. I mean, they have that song. <laughs> oh, yeah. What, what is it? Rich Time Green of Day. your life. life. Oh, you know, that song. Yeah, I Just always, whenever I always think of up. Wake Me Up When September Ends, that one, that one always sticks in my mind as the, the epitome of a Green Day song. What? Well, that's like that the Green one? Day one era, like the early Green Day, I think, is what sticks out to yeah, most people. Yeah, what's the one yeah. where they, they, sh- they shot the music video in the bedroom? What's that one? let's let's end the green day tangent (laughs) Uh, so anyway that logan was directing commercials in 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 uh, chicago and uh that's that's the backstory logan you anything you want to add to that to pat out your credentials because it's not just a high school video (laughs) (laughs) from high school senior video that was my peak (laughs) i peaked in high school um yeah, no, I think when I started working with you guys, yeah, I was, uh, I was, I, I'm still working with a, the, a company in Chicago um, called Optimus slash Wanted Optimus, and now I'm represented by a company called Pet Gorilla here in Los Angeles. Um, but yeah, commercial director, also editor, um, but I've also directed, I've directed personal documentaries. I directed a documentary about RC car racing. I've got one about a giant fungus in the Upper Peninsula that I'm working oh, on. Oh yeah, right let's now. talk about that a little bit because oh, okay. while we've been shooting or working on bus call, you would be taking off these periodic trips, mm-hmm. <laughs> no pun intended, <laughs> to go study a giant mushroom. So can yeah. you t- can you talk about that? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. So that one is um, we're getting close to, to finishing that. The edit's pretty much locked, but it's about. This small town in the Upper Peninsula called Crystal Falls, and a friend of mine grew up there, and this giant fungus was discovered in the early 90s um, that at the time the, a paper came out that said that it was one of the largest living organisms on the planet, and it blew up. It got all this media attention. It was on like David Letterman's top 10. It was a question on where in the world is Carmen San Diego. Um, and then the town created this festival called the Humongous Fungus Fest that's centered around this, this fungus. Um, so we kind of did a documentary where we followed these scientists who discovered it. We went out in the field with them they, as they took samples. Um, and then it's also a documentary about the small town, the people, and how it's affected them and their lives. So, yeah, so that should be – hopefully we'll finish that up. Can you say the, the title? Uh, right, 
we don't really have a title right now. It's just called HF, but I'm not I'm not crazy about that title. So it's pen, title pending. Title pending. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and you're, so you're not gonna call it the, the other name that you had for it, the working title. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember what I, I told you. you call, I think you, you said the humongous fungus among us. Oh, yeah, it could be that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Is the festival still happening? I mean, yeah. it's ongoing, right? Yeah, there was a festival this year. It was, I think it's in August. Um, but yeah, this is the 27th annual festival. So it's been Did you interview Paul Stamets? No. Um, I think we might use some footage of his TED Talk. Okay, but yeah. we didn't. We we we. I think we tried reaching out to him and a couple other people that have done TED talks, but uh, to no yeah. avail. That guy's crazy. <laughs> what about you, Sarah? So now you you don't really have a background in in film. No, uh, you're a musician. But why don't you talk a little bit about how you know what what you do and did and how you came to this project? Other than the fact that you're now married to Logan. <laughs> that was a big part of it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I've trained as a musician, went to music school, was it, worked as a music teacher and in nonprofits in Chicago and played in bands and toured in bands. And then when I, we moved out here to L.A., um, had to find new work and was trying to figure out what my next steps were and I did I made a I took a documentary film class in college so I learned final cut then and made a documentary film about the orchestral audition process which was riveting but it is like that freaks me out the idea of auditioning in that context you mm-hmm. know any kind of auditioning but anything where you're personally accountable and it's like quiet no oh. audience. It's very intense. And the intensity of, and I was, my, most of my friends were percussionists. So, I mean, just, I mean, any orchestral audition, the intensity, the accuracy required is uh, inhuman. Yeah. You cannot make any error. And your whole life, like your whole life can change if you make an error. Yeah. I saw something about that. It wasn't your documentary, but there was someone <laughs> doing a piece on it. And there was a, not a company, but some organization that would take kids, you know, college kids that were going to be auditioning for like New York Phil or whatever. And they did this intense like boot camp mm-hmm. for the audition. Like obviously you're practicing your instrument, but that's part of it. Like it's the pressure, it's the psychology of it. And they had them do this entire, it was like a, a boot camp, like a obstacle course where they literally told them the audition was in one room and they'd go to the room and it wasn't that room and get them all flustered and mm. they'd have to run across the campus get there they're out of breath they don't know what's going on and then they have to play and like mm-hmm. nail the audition it was like an intense training program just to you know play an instrument it sounds like a nickelodeon game show <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean that's basically what i mean what conservatory if you're going to conservatory and you want to be an orchestral musician you're you spend four years practicing for those auditions that's it yeah. it's, i mean there's all the other pieces too but that's the most important piece and and uh, you know there are certain excerpts from famous orchestral pieces so this is the percussionists you know everybody knows these 10 excerpts and when you walk through the halls you just hear the excerpts ringing over and over <laughs> and over and over and over again uh and it's really a it's very bizarre music education because obviously you have to learn musicianship and but it's a lot about accuracy. Yeah. <laughs> what instrument did you play? Well, what did you study? <laughs> In my undergrad, I played the euphonium, <laughs> <laughs> which is a low brass instrument. It looks like a mini tuba. No one knows what it is. It's okay. It's the tuba that you can pick up. 
Yeah, I mean, you can you don't have to it. wear it. Yeah. No, yeah, it's like a little baby. It's like a baby tuba. Yeah. A little baby. The one you wait. So yes, that ex- the one you don't wear. Is that you don't wear it. So the tuba you wear is actually a sousaphone. Oh, okay. I just oh, made you could right, pick it up because yeah. a real a, a big tuba is the f- fucking huge. Yeah, euphoniums look manageable. If mm-hmm. you don't have a sousaphone, you would typically place tuba seated. Oh, I see. Uh, okay. You still would play the euphonium seated too. This is all. It's such a weird, dumb instrument. So this ex- <laughs> this ex- this explains why uh, I see people on the football field with oboes running through tires. <laughs> is it part of the audition preparation? Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then you now play the accordion because the euphonium wasn't uncool enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, uh, yeah. Funny enough, is that I play the accordion of all instruments. And you've to- you've toured around. I mean, mm-hmm. you played in musical rock bands and such yes. so like that was interesting uh, to relate it to basketball again for us but you you toured so you had some experience of this you know you weren't looking at this cold like you know what are these guys doing like you've toured you've been through the ups and downs of touring around and and, and doing all that so tell us a little bit about that like who did you tour with and mm-hmm. where did you guys go and any things that stick out in your memory about that? Yeah, I mean, after after college, I picked up the accordion mainly because the euphonium is really only present in, in Western wind band music. So as someone who is interested in more than John Philip Sousa and I wanted to learn how to play in another instrument, um, I don't know, I found an accordion on Craigslist and it was great. It was love at first. So you mean you didn't yeah. start because you're a fan of Johnny? <laughs> <laughs> no, in fact, like when Logan went to go see you guys at the Elbow Room, it wasn't until like afterwards he's like, yeah, and one of them plays the accordion. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> like I'm the, I was at that point, I was the only person I knew that played an accordion in a rock band. Yeah, totally so, jacked, yeah. <laughs> jacked your style there. <laughs> what was the name, of, what was the name of the band that you were in? Uh, I played the main band I played in was called Dastardly that I played accordion and percussion and stuff in. And we, you know, it was very DIY, very independent, but we toured, toured around, slept on the floors, lots of cat vomit memories. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That was one of the members, right? I just, it was like, we were in New York. It was really exciting and really fun. We played really fun shows and I just woke up the next morning and walked to the bathroom and stepped in cat vomit. And when you're on tour, you don't have that many pairs of socks. <laughs> and so, and those are my like comfy, warm, comfy yeah. socks. And they were ruined. I had to throw them away. It's and it was how, really, <laughs> really sad. Of all the, all the experiences you could note on tour, you know, like, oh yeah, we play on stage and people, are, and it's, it's those kind of memories that like, <laughs> those are the go-to, you know? I, you know, I went on tour. Yeah. What'd you do? Oh, uh, we got Pringles at the fucking gas station because that's all we had time for, you know? <laughs> but hopefully you've learned that socks and chonies, as Garen says, yes. yeah, you can't overpack. You can't overpack. Yes. Well, that's clearly why you picked up on the editing of Bus Call so quickly. You know, it, at first, when you were, you were just doing dailies at first, right? Or you were transcribing, I think. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and then Logan said, hey, you mind if... Uh, Sarah takes a crack at editing this, and like the first thing you did, we're like, "Oh, she gets it," because you've pl- you've played music, so editing music to mm-hmm. film, you know, you get the timing of it. Um, you've toured, you got the sense of what we're trying to do, and then editing was just kind of like this, yeah, easy thing that came to you. It seemed like I don't know how much like I, mean, I don't know how many off, you know, how many hours you put in like outside of the office, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it seemed like you know it just came really naturally. Yeah, and, uh, you taught us some shortcuts. 
It, oh yeah, yeah all we, my keyboard <laughs> keyboard right, yeah, uh, <laughs> That's the exciting. That's the new exciting thing was when Sarah and Logan come in is who's got a new shortcut they can tell. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's control tilled. Control tilled. Yeah. yeah, it's how uh, it's how they uh, became known. I'm I'm pr- kind of personally proud that we played a part in turning you guys into the dynamic editing duo you know the the power editing power couple as we call you because both of you guys had such kind of unique input to the project and i'm glad we have both of you in a way because you brought two different perspectives and um and the fact that logan shot the footage and that sarah you you didn't you were looking at it with fresh eyes that was very helpful i just liked watching them disagree (laughs) (laughs) when it came to a couple of the episodes that they both you know one started working on and then the other one finished working on we got to watch them disagree about which scenes to cut or stay you know put in you know those weren't actually about fight fight. those weren't actually about the scenes they were about we were working stuff out between us (laughs) I I think I have a photo there's this table it's like a dining room table where we have a bunch of hard drives set up here in the front front lounge for um, editing where they were literally facing each other you know each on their own computer uh, with these massive hard drives working on separate episodes and it's just I, I'll see if I can find that photo because it kind of s- said everything like here's a married couple looking at each other at work working on the same project looking at footage of these weird dudes you know that in the in the uh, front lounge of this rock band it's like mm-hmm. it's kind of a weird little story but uh, mm-hmm. it kind of it kind of works yeah, yeah I'm very very grateful for the experience it was I mean an amazing project to work on as someone who doesn't didn't came, came into it not having that much editing experience, but having a lot of otherwise applicable experience. So mm. I felt very lucky that that's I really got to learn the software and like the kind of technical pieces of it while working on really interesting, you know, musical footage. It's just the best. It's very very lucky. I'm going to take a second here and say to everyone, spread the word about Bus Call because. Sometimes if I think about this as an outsider and you look at the amount of work that's gone into this, and obviously not just this, like every documentary that's out there, like it's such a fucking long process. It's been three years. It's been three years of like eight people's hours and hours and hours and hours into this. So I know everyone that's listening to this has, has watched it, or I assume most of you have, but just you know, spread the word. That's really what's going to help this get uh, out there so that hopefully we see some return and I don't mean money I mean like just people becoming aware of this and seeing this project that we've been working on for so long so spread the word yeah I th- you know I'm I think uh, we've talked a lot about bus call but it's it's our life it's our life on film and the fact that you guys could sit there and look at thousands of hours of us and not hate us by the end or at least we hope not <laughs> you know I'm, I'm constantly amazed because I come in and, and see you guys looking at the same scene over and over again of us yelling at each other or complaining <laughs> about the record label or whatever it's like again you're complaining about the label again uh, I don't know if I could look at other people doing that for hours and not hate them <laughs> yeah. well the thing is you guys are generally generally <laughs> Yes, Logan, uh, you've given us one. That's never going away. <laughs> Can I speak generally for a second? <laughs> um, you guys are you guys are generally great guys and just very likable. And you know, That's you a had your thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm generally trying to get this out. Uh, it's yeah, no, you guys are. Um, you know, you have your you have fights and you have complaints about the label and stuff throughout, but. Um, but it's fun. I mean, I love hanging out with you guys on tour. Like that's 
part of the reason why I wanted to, you know, I did one tour, one small part of the North America tour, and then when you guys asked me out again, you know, it was kind of a no-brainer because it was it was a great time. So it was a great time. I wish, and though I wish I had footage of dancing in Fargo because oh, I saw yeah. some Logan moves that belong on SNL. They were so funny. I don't really, <laughs> I mean, they were yeah. intentionally funny. You weren't you weren't trying to be cool. Like, yeah, what, well, isn't that? I, don't you? I have, was trying. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't that where you also got? Um, well, maybe not the dance moves. Maybe those are innate. But you had some training in um, stand, not stand up, but uh, improv. Improv, right? Yeah, yeah. That's what you were doing in Chicago before the film. Yeah, I did improv and, and, and sketch comedy in Chicago at Second City and, and IO Theater and a bunch of independent groups. But the dance he thinks was he's just funny. purely from. <laughs> Yeah, the dancing. I from did God. get trained to dance. It's, it's uh, yeah. from God, pretty yeah, much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus Christ gave it to me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, that, that dancing. I just, I, I had a buddy um, that I would go out with a lot that we, like, we like to dance, and we would just dance as terribly as we, well, he probably tried to dance. I just tried to, <laughs> I danced as terribly as I could. Yeah, uh, actually, that's like our first date was dancing. Yeah. and, and Yeah. And so you... I'm amazed you guys made it, having, yeah. having seen that so early on in, <laughs> in your relationship. Proof and I hope out there, guys. Logan, <laughs> Logan got married and has a baby on the way, and he has some of the... I, th- I think I might on my iPhone have some clips of him dancing somewhere, because that I, we went out that night in Fargo, and it was nothing to do. It was like Monday night, yeah. you know, October, like literally nothing going on. And... Um, you guys found your way into a bar, and I think I called. I was like, "All right, guys, I'm leaving." And I, on my way out, I saw the moves were coming, <laughs> and uh, I only heard about them. But I've seen the moves before that. <laughs> uh, Gerber and I used to see if we could get a bar or whatever dancing, just because if nobody was dancing, we would start, and it worked almost invariably. If it was like a monkey see, monkey do type scenario, you could get you know a hundred people dancing just if you committed to being ridiculous yeah. it's yeah. funny that night when i was dancing with you guys no one else danced that was fargo that was fargo's a hard sell <laughs> <laughs> let's let's move on to the music only section real quick um we're going to talk about a band that sarah brought up and then i wanted to talk about since in this episode we go to russia i have a vivid memory of riding the train from st petersburg to moscow and i figured let's I'm going to give myself the perfect soundtrack for this setting because, you know, just it's a what, two hour or hour and a half ride yes. at the speed of light. And um, so I put on some Alexander Skriabin, who is a Russian composer. And the best description I could give of him is if you've ever listened to Eric Satie or Ravel or Debussy, that kind of impressionist uh, piano stuff, you know, uh, I think it's early 20s, maybe, maybe turn of the century and then into the tw- uh, 10s and 20s. Very impressionistic stuff, but imagine a Russian doing it. And I actually prefer, in some respects, Scriabin. It's a little more uh, depth to it, or, or it's a little more complicated. You can live in it a little longer, and it's not quite as... Um, I, I don't know. It's, it's not even Ravel or uh, Satie's fault. It's become a bit of a caricature of itself, not because of the music, but just because it's so used every time there's a you know scene like that. So we'll throw up a link or two to some pieces by Alexander Skriabin. That's all I wanted to say. I just it was really nice going through Russia, seeing the snow, listening to music that was composed in Russia by a Russian, performed by a Russian Sviatoslav Richter, and uh, yeah, it was just a, like it was you, a really cool experience. You get it. Yeah. You know, you, it all makes sense. I find that wh- where you hear music that comes from a certain place and you're in that place, 
sometimes there's this this aha that happens, you know, where you may even like the music before, but when you hear it in its context, it's a whole nother level of connection. Yeah. And it that that's interesting to to think that something as as sort of subtle as the surroundings, you know, could find their way into the harmony and the music in such a definite way where it seems to be connected to the land. Yeah, I mean, you don't hear the harmony that is in Scriabin or any of those, or northern like uh, Scandinavian or like Estonia, those types of countries. You don't hear that harmony coming out of Brazil mm. or Colombia, just as the, in the same way you don't hear, <laughs> like there's no jamming, like Russian dudes coming up with cool grooves. You know, mm. like I, I, it, the weather, it seems to have a massive effect on what people are writing about. Like the Northern Europeans are just crying all the time because life sucks. <laughs> and if you're near the equator, you're having the time of your life. <laughs> I don't know. I think there's some pretty groovy Stravinsky and Shostakovich. Yeah, probably, yeah and they probably stole it from... <laughs> <laughs> this is true, yes. But yeah, no, I know what you're talking about. There's some, they've got some... Groovy's not the word I would use. Probably not, no. Rock, <laughs> funky. It, it is kind of rocking. rocking. It definitely. is rocking. Like, there's some Prokofiev that is like, holy shit, that's rock and roll. It's more like metal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's true, yeah. It um, back when the, you, they didn't have amplification, so they just needed to make shit as loud. They've people have been trying to make loud music forever. Yeah. They well, there's the Mahler. Mahler oh. six has the big box in it. Do you guys know about that? No, no. Ma- Mahler six in the percussion section calls for a large hammer on a big box. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what's actual. I don't know. What, I've never played it. I don't know what it says in the score, but it's really fun for a percussionist to get to play huh. the big Hit box. The Why hammer, don't they yeah. give that jump to a carpenter though? <laughs> well, you know, they you know, the percussionist is a professional. <laughs> they find just the right box and just the right spot to hit it with yeah. just it, the right force. <laughs> it always kills me at a symphony concert to see the percussionist in a piece that's percussion light mm-hmm. sit around for thirty minutes waiting for their like moment cymbal to crash, hit the gong yeah. or the cymbal or the triangle trill they have to do. It's like how do you not fall asleep? Because if you mess it up, you are fired forever. Yeah, I guess, yeah. That's like the most <laughs> pressure. Like, ding, 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 ding. Yeah. Um, this kind of brings us into me thinking about, the, there's this composer called Bela Bartok, who is a Hungarian composer. And he and Prokofiev that you mentioned, they were, I, I forget who, who it was referred to as, the enfant terrible, however you pronounce it in French, like the terrible child. And I'm just trying to imagine being at the time in the 10s or 20s, whenever it was, where they play a piece that now just sounds like classical music. You know, it's, it's crazy music, but like where people were literally walking out of the theater, there were newspaper saying articles evil. saying it's evil, this shit is like, what, it's not music, it should be banned. Like they still do it now. I feel like now it's more about like, it's either political or social commentary that people are offended by. It's not music because all music now just sounds the same, like shitty pop synths and all that. But well, the to, idea that our harmony is offensive is yeah, not an idea. There's a piece oh, right uh, that of Bartok's where there's newspaper articles where people just left entirely, and it's not like he was like swearing and saying "fuck the president" or like you know "fuck the police," like a social commentary that's controversial. He just played some notes on a piano, yeah, and people, people like, walked it's demonic. Out. It still sounds. I mean, Bartok still sounds Nuts. subversive or something. Yeah, yeah, it sounds insane. And uh, there, what is that? Uh, uh, Penderecki. Uh, Penderecki, yeah. Penderecki. He uses those like 16-tone scales, which just are perfectly wrong. And every horror movie you've ever seen has been scored. The by. Shining is yeah, the yeah. one everyone will know. He's, uh, he's a Polish composer. It's, re- it's, it's weird how I, uh, I played a, 
Marlo some Penderecki, and he's like, oh, he, he was like, what the hell is that fucking music? It's creeping me out. You know, it's. I've not ever heard music that is actually as scary as his. There's a piece he does. He does a passion, Saint Luke's Passion, so like a mass, a passion for the Christ, you know, which is a common form that a lot of classical composers use as the passion. And I was driving late one night. We were out in L.A. visiting before we even lived here. And I was driving home, and it was late and it's kind of dark, foggy night. And one of these chords hit, and it actually fucking freaked me out. I was like, <laughs> "I'm about to die!" <laughs> Looking around, like I was in a like I was in a horror movie. It's weird to be able to capture that kind of fear in music. Yeah, um, Sarah, we wanted to talk about your the band that you played with. Um, why don't you say the name? Uh, they're called Mukapazza. Mukapazza. Yeah, which is Italian for mad cow. Uh, basically a Chicago institution. Most people, if you've lived in Chicago for a while, you've probably seen Mukapatsa somewhere around and you've been like, man, this one time I was downtown and there was just this weird marching band that just came out of nowhere. What the <laughs> heck was that? It was cool. I don't know what it was. That was Mukapatsa. <laughs> you played euphonium in that, right? No, I oh, played percussion. Oh, I was okay. a percussionist in that group. But yeah, they are... Uh, Oh, man, it's very, they're very hard to describe, but it's a large group. They're kind of like a marching band in that they move around when they play their instruments. Um, but all of their music is composed by members. It's not vocal. There's no vocalist. It's all instrumental. It's through composed, and it has a lot of world and classical music influences. So is there any like, kind of Baltic, like those Baltic brass bands? Mm-hmm. That so that's definitely that? a huge influence because, yeah, we got, you know, trombones, sousaphones, accordion. Okay. Uh, they, there's an amazing cello player who uh, joined, I think, a few years How ago. They move She's around? amazing. She uses a guitar strap to kind of strap the cello huh. to her. They plug in, yeah. Uh, some, sometimes. Sometimes we're plugged in. They actually have these... Um, he, uh, what do they? I can't think of how we, we would call them, but they're um, megaphones attached to a helmet. That so they have rigged a system so they plug in <laughs> and the sound comes out of their megaphone helmet okay. when we're on when we're mobile, fully mobile. I group. picture that in like a the guy who directed Amelie, one of those movies. Totally, I a weird French dude walking around with a megaphone in his head and a yes. cello strapped to him or something. Yeah, and a lot of, we all, the group also has um, cheerleaders who are not instrumentalists, but a lot of the people who play are very theater, very theater influenced or actors. So it's very much performance performance theater in addition to pretty really sweet music. Yeah, you know? Dylan's Dylan's pulling up some YouTube clips now as we as we talk about it, which we will post. Um, you did you've done quite a lot of shows with him right and you've done shows all over the country which we figured could kind of segue us into our music business section to talk about corporate gigs which um any any band that kind of gets to a point where they're actually somebody wants to hire them to pay them you know a corporation wants to pay them uh which we've done we've done some corporate gigs and it's kind of a part of the life they're very remarkable gigs for different reasons um so Sarah, why don't you tell us about some of the corporate gigs you guys did? Because they can uh, be good or bad. Or- yes, yeah. I mean, an operation the size of Mukopatsa, it's a lot in order to make it run. It's actually, a, it seems like a miracle that that group still exists, but it's, some of it, ha- enabled to, the reason that it's able to sustain itself is through these corporate gigs. And um, one. Of the- how many people approximately is it average? Yeah, at a, at a performance, usually around like 23 would be in the group. Um, 
Right, which is not, but the they play in clubs and like rock clubs right. and stuff. So it makes it a very intense, loud, awesome experience to have that many people playing in your face. And yeah. they do get in your face, in the <laughs> audience's face for sure. Um, but so yeah, they're lucky enough because they do, they're very charismatic. It's very lighthearted. The band actually has a mission statement, which is to find joy and spread it or find joy and share it. So it's very happy, very joyful which is nicely very kind of appealing to certain corporate people who need <laughs> who need musical entertainment but one of the very first gigs i did with Mukapatsa was a corporate gig at the hyatt convention center in chicago at eight like eight thirty in the morning <laughs> for a, this giant convention that was for like a software program for paralegals sexy yeah so i'm pretty sure that's what it was and it was like a whole like people from all over the country came in for this conference to learn more about their software program that they have to use at work and they have to be there at 8 30 in the morning and it's like wow everyone's real pumped to be there and it was basically our job as musicians to like pump people up <laughs> but mucopats is pretty weird like they're not, yeah, they're it's yeah out there. Yeah, it's really it's it's pretty eccentric and pretty odd. And so they had us. They wanted us to get people excited before the thing even started. So the people were at their breakfast buffet in the hotel, and we showed up in our ma marching band uniforms, in our <laughs> mismatched marching band uniforms with our instruments, and just kind of like walked around annoying people, <laughs> making weird sounds. And it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be like. Oh, pe get people excited. Like, oh, what's going to happen? What's going to be next? And then our job was to like usher people into the convent, into the big room from their breakfast. But people were just like, who are these people? Like, get them away from me. <laughs> the and, bookers uh, for these corporate events are either sometimes like they, they're very subversive themselves like mm -hmm. they want to put a way they like that's fun for the person who booked that right or they're just clueless like it's you it's one of those two things you get where right. they're like this band doesn't fit at all mm -hmm. i'm just, just book them or they're like i'm i like this band i'm gonna make everyone in this room right listen to them. i do think ultimately it was an incredibly memorable like yeah. the people who were there had a very memorable experience mm. but i'll never forget we bring them all in there's a shitload of people in one of those big banquet rooms yeah. i mean huge amount of people and we're on this stage and that we were told that our cue we play a couple songs it's super high energy i'm like literally i play the crash cymbals and i'm jumping up and down playing crash <laughs> cymbals like getting in people's faces it's like super intense and then we were supposed to freeze at the end of the last song and the lights go out and of course we like froze and the lights didn't go out and we were just standing there and it was at that point 8.45 a.m. And we just like shuffled off and Rock people and like lightly clapped. <laughs> and then I had to like go to work. <laughs> Special day. I did, before we even talk about the big corporate gigs we did, I remember now, this was before even anything. I was just in school, like this was 1999 or 2000. I got a gig playing piano with a saxophone player at a Macy's like just there but we were there for the morning shift or something and we were there before the Macy's opened and I had never seen the behind the scenes of a corporate pump up like at a big place like Macy's where they get on the loudspeaker and they do all the little chants and everything it's creepy <laughs> it's like, we're gonna sell a lot of clothes today and perfume too didn't the, <laughs> the pep rally came 
from corporations. Originally. Yeah, the whole yeah. school came from a corporation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've done a, a fair amount of corporate gigs. You know, some of them are better than others. You know, a lot of times you you literally do it for the money, especially on a tour. You know, if you're on some of our tours, we've taken out big lighting packages, which are very expensive. And so sometimes one of those corporate gigs can kind of help cover your costs. And Logan was that one. We, we've done some really lame ones where it's the same kind of deal. You know, it's, it's a corporate environment or it's, it's people that who are trying to attach themselves to music or something hip or cool, you know, to help sell their product. And you always feel a little bit gross doing it, but at the same time you want the money. So it's, you know, it's a form of selling out, but fuck it, you know, best, like we, we best literally we need did. that money. <laughs> the best one we did that was, it paid well and was actually a good gig was for Pandora, which kind of makes sense because they're a music company. So it was, they understood a little bit more, but I remember Lexus and Pandora. Yeah. Lexus yeah. and Pandora. And, uh, it was at some, uh, air force or airplane museum in Riverside, and that was really interesting because we went out uh, to the venue and we walked outside and an F-16 was doing touch and goes. And if you've never seen that, I, which I had never seen before, that is insane. Seeing like it just, would come in, touch the ground and go back up, you know, and shoot up vertically. But then we walked with the, one of the guys, an ex-pilot, took us on a tour of some of the old things. And we went to, I think it's a C-130, one of those big things. And it was, it was they called the body carrier planes. They were the planes that... They did a lot of things, but they would bring people back. And what this plane did was it carried caskets back from Vietnam. So, you know, just thousands of bodies had traveled in this thing. And he starts telling us that this plane's haunted. And I just remember thinking, like, every time, you know, whenever someone tells you something's haunted, you're you're like, yeah, bullshit. I don't believe in that. But something about this dude, he seemed like such a serious, normal dude, and he'd flown these things in Vietnam. And he wasn't saying, like, oh, it's... He was just saying, like, we've noticed some noises in row 14 because he took us into the plane. We were talking about doing the meet and greet in the plane. <laughs> yeah, with, yeah. With the and he was pointing to certain areas. He's like, we've you know, had some people stay on here at night, and there's definite movement and noises in row 14 and uh, 15. And there was just something about the way he was saying that was so serious where I was like, okay, I'll give you 2% of my belief on this. Because it was just, it was quite like bone chill. You're like, what if there? What if there is something to this? You know, yeah. like your brain goes there for a moment. Yeah. Logan, we uh, in episode two we covered the Catalina wine mixer, which you shot. Yeah. Uh, anything stand out from that other than the fact that we were, I don't know, just quoting Step Brothers all day long? I I mean that whole day was wackadoo, but it was really <laughs> fun. Um, in such a weird, I mean, just like that was that was I think that was the second gig that I did with you guys, because um, before that was the first uh, show in Las Vegas. So that was the second gig that I... So, you know, we rode in a helicopter to the island, which was wild, and then just everything about it, just being, like, you know, right on the beach. Um, I mean, yeah, in the episode, like, Mick gets that massage, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is hilarious. But, yeah, but it was it was also just, like, really nice, because, I mean, it was beautiful there. It was beautiful weather, like, between soundcheck and the show. I know some of you guys... I, I don't. I think we split up. I went with the crew, and we went to a beach. And like some of us didn't have swimsuits, so we bought swimsuits, and then you know just like floated in the water for a bit. I mean, it was it was lovely. It yeah, was the the parts off of corporate gigs are often very nice because yeah. they're paying well. You're in nice hotels, and you get to do stuff. It's the that one was okay. Yeah, you it know, wasn't it was as little, weird as it could have been. I mean, the the promoters were basically trying to recreate this 
event. There's a fictional event in that movie Step Brothers with Will Ferrell and John right. C. Riley. Uh, you know, it's like this corporate mixer, Catalina wine mixer, where powerhouses of the industry meet. And and then they decided to make an event out of it. And we we laughed when we got the offer. We're like, oh, this is this is real. This is not a joke. <laughs> and then we you know saw that it could help us. I, I always think that I didn't know it was a fake event. I just now in retrospect though, you can picture. Will Ferrell and John C. Riley just thinking of the funniest <laughs> or the name cat. for uh, this the super important, you know, corporate event. The yeah, so. well, and they flew you guys in a helicopter pretty unnecessarily, from oh, what it's I totally understand. Unnecessary. Right. And like when Logan told me about this, I thought I'm like, that's hilarious because in the movie the band shows up in a helicopter. Yeah. But it's from the what band I band, isn't it? I think we requested that <laughs> because or because no. most of the stuff had to go on the ferry. And we said, "Oh no, they were going to send the band." But then we said, "Just take no, they all offer, of us." It was in the offer. You get to ride on a helicopter. Yeah, uh, so yeah. It was like, but, so no, it was the opposite. We had to send the gear on the ferry, right? Oh, okay. Which was like, "Oh, this is hilarious." But in the movie, it was like people saw the band arrive in the helicopter. Yeah. You guys just landed someplace. It, it's not like the people who were there for the event no, saw they, the band arrive. So it was just like yeah. it was like they were trying to have integrity of the fictional event right, by yeah. having you guys arrive in a helicopter for well, the no first day of reason. the event is they just watch the movie in a, in a castle <laughs> in, in a castle somewhere or something like I that I wouldn't surprise me if it goes on to become a big festival I mean like it's Catalina Island people like going there anyway but you know you could do it the, the, the gig was alright um, worst worst corporate gig ever it's gotta be the pizza I just wanna wine. say one more thing about that so the Catalina wine mixer, we you know, high hopes for the tour, and then the shit starts to go bad on the tour, as you've seen in the first few episodes. Uh, but Danny got a free hat from the wine mixer, so he wore that hat for the rest of the tour. <laughs> so for me, one of the funniest things about editing was looking at these argument scenes or these scenes where we're like intensely upset about stuff, you know, and our career is in jeopardy. And Danny's yelling at somebody on the phone in a fucking Catalina wine <laughs> <Yeah>. mixer hat. <laughs> That's kind of why uh, Halloween is one of my favorite uh, holidays because I. Will, it's sad, but I also love seeing couples fighting dressed up as like Frankenstein's <laughs> monster yeah. and you know a carpenter, like just like yeah, uh, it's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, oh, I was yeah. just saying worst worst corporate gig was uh, we did a Pizza Hut one, which uh, there's not even much to say about it. It was just everything wrong with the gig and people doing that yeah it was a special i always describe pizza hut as like a tempurpedic mattress with ketchup on it <laughs> and that was perfect hey, i used it as a pillow be careful you, don't, you might want to get more pizza hut offers you know <laughs> you're gonna bleep this like <laughs> watch dominoes come to the table here <laughs> um all right so deep thoughts um i think given that editing is such a part of this um, discussion and a part of bus call. I thought we could explore the topic of editing both in that sense and also in a more deep sense, so to speak. Uh, we can get into the conversation, I think, in in this... <laughs> <laughs> and this is my point exactly, is that we decided to make an edit there because I had a brain fart in the middle of trying to say something very deep. Um, but working through this project, uh, the band is very attached to the material because obviously it's our life and we lived it and we're trying to portray something. So we don't have a necessarily objective view of what we're trying to portray. Whereas you guys 
obviously you, you know us and we're friends, so you're invested somewhat, but less so because you're outside of the project in a way. And so you were able to give us a more objective view um, of what perhaps should stay in, what should go. And we had a lot of conversations through the process of where we, we've, we've been attached to certain scenes and you guys have either convinced us or not, but very often have convinced us, well, it's not really aiding the story and you guys are too close to the material or whatever. And that, that discussion was quite helpful in the process. And I feel like we've done a pretty good job of balancing that, you know, of staying connected to what we're identified with um, and also having a more objective view of what, uh, you know, what is interesting in a general sense or to the general public. So editing played a huge part in that uh, and also editing our feelings, you know. So mm-hmm. how, how did you guys feel about that? Obviously, communicating that to us is, you know, how we go about that in the discussion. Did you have any thoughts or did you discuss it behind our backs? <laughs> so, like they, they really want the scene, but it sucks. So how do we convince them? You know? Well, like, I mean, I think like Dylan pointed out, like Logan and I often disagreed on similar things and, you know, between us disagreeing and there were four of you guys and sometimes even your parents, (laughs) 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 you know, having opinions. But I will say that in addition to it being your, you know, story of your life, you guys, you you know, you were there and you had some pretty transformative experiences on these tours where that might not necessarily be in the footage, Mm. which I think those were the times that were probably the hardest when it's like, but you're trying to convey something that you experience that is true and is real and was important to you. But you, you know, the, foot, the, right, foot, yeah. the footage yeah. is like, Oh, but in the footage, you guys are just walking around <laughs> right, <yeah. laughs> and uh, it's not like, to me, it's like, I get that that happened, but that's going to be really hard to convey. Right, so yeah. 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 I think it's, it's very related to, I mean, the way that <clears throat> we have to construct this stuff is very related to, you know, it's similar to the way that we construct memories i feel like because it's all you know our even though we were you know there were times where like we like we all were on tour in europe and there were some parts where um i remember at the the bar in poland you you know you guys had a very different impression of that night than the way that i experienced it and it's funny that you know our like our state of mind colored the way that we experienced yeah. that night and i think that's that was just kind of an interesting thing like that you know, I thought mm. about how, like, you know, this editing process is, you know, it's kind of like what we discussed before, where we're we're creating a certain truth. We're not creating the truth. We're creating a truth that is experienced by one person, or uh, you know, right, a, yeah. or we're trying to convey that without, you know, like boring people to death by showing every single thing that happened. Yeah, yeah, that that's a good scene, I think, to discuss because. Uh, it was it was a bittersweet time in Europe. We were having a lot of fun. Um, at the same time, in the back of our minds was how much it was costing and all the problems that we were having business wise um, back home. So we're we're trying to juggle these feelings of really enjoying seeing these parts of the world, playing to great crowds, having fun with the crew, drinking and and all that. And that night in Poland, where I, I actually didn't get shit faced, uh, I. <laughs> I took that night off, <laughs> but a bunch of the band and crew did, and it was so warm and welcoming. These guys in the venue, you know, little venue in Poznan, Poland, we'd never been to before, and they just kind of welcomed us, and everyone had a good time and drank too much. Um, at the same time, it was kind of weird. And when we put that music under, we talked about it in the previous 
uh, podcast, Johnny has this weird piece of music that really twists your insides, I feel. And somehow the juxtaposition of that really worked for us on, in terms of the show. It made us feel weird. It made us remember the weird memories of that. And and at first, Logan was kind of put off by it. It was like, yeah. hey, I remember having a great fucking time. You know, yeah. why are you guys screwing this scene up? <laughs> yeah, it was a very different experience for me because, I mean, well, part of it probably was just because I was watching everything behind the camera. Yeah. So I was just observing everyone getting shit-faced without getting shit-faced myself. <laughs> and, you know, and everyone seemed to be having a good time. But I also, I, I'd been there for some of the discussions that you guys had had with, about the label and stuff that was going on. So I'd seen that, but because I wasn't experiencing it personally, I didn't have that. It wasn't as prominent in my mind as it was in your mind. So that night just felt, yeah, I, I fought back the first time I heard it with that music because I was like, that it didn't feel right. But mm. it, like after watching it more and and hearing your guys' perspective on it, it made sense that that music would feel right in that scene. I think the memory thing's a good analogy because your state definitely determines the memories you can access even. You know, it works if you're in a positive, or maybe even more specific than just positive and negative, if you're in a specific emotional state, it clearly filters what memories you have access to. They're linked mm-hmm. to that same feeling, you know? Mm. It, just, uh, it kind of also just brings up another point in terms of the pushback and the fight about a creative idea, because we have this all the time in music also, and I'm sure you guys do in, in everything that you work on, where you don't want to be closed off to other people's opinions and ideas, but there you have to retain a certain amount of your initial conviction, because... You you know you don't want to be one of these people that just goes oh they said it wasn't good we should we should change it because then you're left with nothing of what you were initially trying to say of course you can't be the opposite necessarily and we are constantly and I'm constantly battling with that where that line is and where that balance is and obviously it's shifting and moving all the time but it's a difficult thing to like when do I just say no fuck you this is how we're doing it and this is how it's going to be versus... Never, you never say that to me or I'll, or I'll cry. <laughs> or, or when do you just say, oh, yeah, they've, they're actually seeing this clearly. You know, uh, it's a constant battle for artists such as ourselves. Yeah, and The less reactionary it is, the more that conviction deserves um, like uh, weight or whatever. You know, you know if, you're, if you're just reacting saying no... I don't want to do that. I don't want to change that. It's usually the wrong reaction. But if you say, if you're in your own mind are calm and you say, no, I want to do it for this reason, then it's an indication that you're not just resisting outside opinion. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. It's, it's also a time thing. If you keep coming back, to, like I've had that sometimes where I've had opposition to you guys on a particular song. And then it's sometimes it is what you're saying. It's reactionary. I just don't want to agree with you or I don't want to do extra work. And then other times I'll go back for a month or two, work on a song and go, you know what? I have to go with whatever my conviction is on this because time after time it feels right. And this was one of those scenes where it's not even necessarily that you were wrong. We could have cut that Poland shot scene in entirely different. It could have just been a fun party scene. Yeah. you know. Uh, but we decided, let, no, let's go for this mood rather. Yeah. I think uh, your, your emotional reaction, like Danny's saying, to criticism or somebody contradicting you is sometimes an indicator. It's like a little... Um, a windsock of, of what th- the truth is, you know? Because uh, I, I can sense it sometimes when somebody tells me they don't like this or they think this should be different or, you know, this is the better way to do it, especially in, in an artistic project. Um, if I react, my ego goes, oh, f- no, 
it's, you're wrong. I like it. It's good. It's great. That's very often an indication that of, of actual doubt in my own mind, where yeah. you, when your ego steps in and goes, fuck you, this is great, you know? That's very often an indication of the opposite, I feel like. Whereas if you're confident, if you're not emotionally hurt by a criticism, um, then it's because the truer part of yourself perhaps is more convinced that you are right or that you're doing something good. Yeah, so, it's funny. I read, read something last night that pretty much puts it exactly like that. It's the more often you find yourself self-justifying, the more often you're probably lying to yourself and that it's kind of this um, direct correlation to um, self-justifying and lying. Yeah. It's, that, also de- it, it also depends on where the opinion's coming from. Like I know that if the three of you guys, brothers, and now to a certain extent, Sarah and Logan, when they have come back against us on certain things, now I, I take it a lot more seriously because we've gone through the whole project. I see where they're coming from. I respect their opinions. We also had a lot of people telling us we should cut the far away section out of Come With Me Now because it was never going to fly on radio yeah. <laughs> or that we should cut the accordion intro out. You know, So you have to take it from whence it comes. And uh, you have it's you know I guess judgment is... You have to have judgment and of everything, of every yeah. opinion that comes to you is not actually worthwhile. Right. And I think that the, yeah, the hard part about any criticism is, especially with an artistic project that you've probably poured a lot of yourself into, is, is being able to separate yourself emotionally and realize that the person is not criticizing you. They're criticizing the work, which is separate from you, even though part of you is in it. It's a weird like yeah. line you have to tell. Mm. Also, a lot of times with these with music and, you know, these editing projects, which are very creative, they have so many, va- there are so many variables in e- in a song in terms of like you're mixing or you're, you know, arranging or and in the edit, it's like, well, it could be that this part doesn't work the way that it is now, but it can work if, you know, if we try it in a different way or yeah, something you yeah. know what i mean Dif- it's like right. there's Some so ideas much variable. need to be followed before they can be validated or yeah you know, before yeah. yeah it's like let's make sure we we try this idea all the way before we get rid of it completely which we might end up getting, re- getting rid of it completely anyways yeah um and but it's like you don't want to waste a bunch of time if everybody yeah. hates it on the on the opposite spectrum <laughs> the, the way that i learned how to separate myself from from the work i did was in college i was in a sketch group where we would bring in sketches every week and we would rehearse them and, you know, we'd, like, cast the roles and if we'd just do a rough read through the sketch. And if the sketch didn't go well, if it wasn't funny enough, then the leader of the group should be like, all right, well, that wasn't good. And then just literally rip the sketch in half. <laughs> Everyone would rip the sketch in half so we'd know that that sketch, like, we weren't going to keep going with. You know, the first couple of times this happened, we'd be like, no, wait, my baby, no. <laughs> but then after a while, you're just like, oh, yeah, that, that sucked. Yeah, all right. Well, well see, that's, that's a really nice thing about sketch comedy or even comedy. It's like you're in front of a live audience or you're in front of other people if you're just rehearsing it. And it's like there's no denying how something reacts. Mm-hmm. Whereas writing a piece of music or working on a documentary like we have been for the past like two years – we're really in a bubble. We have no idea how it's going to react. And then we're putting it out there and we're just hoping people, whereas you got, you like, first draft of the script, let's try it out. Oh, fuck. Well, completely well, killed I, or completely died, you know? Yeah, I think that's partially true, though, because I've seen comedians do the same bits and it, sometimes it is just a shit audience. You know, like, you can't, you can't necessarily believe it all the time, but, I, yeah, I agree that like, sketch comedy is a lot more immediate. You, you, instantaneous it's, it's like feedback. You, you know? feel it. In the same way that sometimes we play a song for somebody else and you're like, 
oh, I now I hear this as others hear it a bit better and you kind of reject it. I guess the other aspect of this conversation that could be brought into it, this editing is self-editing in terms of how having the cameras around, we began to edit our behavior. And I don't mean just like not saying dumb shit on that, but like you began to perceive yourself, especially as we began to edit ourselves of how we come across. And you began to like think, Ah, I should be more succinct in my sentences or I should, you know, not always do that silly thing I always do with my left hand or my foot or whatever, you know. <laughs> it's interesting to watch yourself back because you find that if life is a play and this is the stage or whatever the fucking thing is, like, you know, all bad we could all do with a lot of editing in life. Mm-hmm. Well, we and do the it. podcast is over. <laughs> <laughs> I think people do it anyway. They just do it subconsciously as well. You know, anytime you meet someone new or anytime you're interacting with people, you're you're presenting some side of yourself, which is, you know, whatever you're you want them to see. Um, and most people are doing it unaware that they're doing. It. They think that's who they are in that moment. They think that that they are this best version of themselves. When really, in their subconscious, or when they're not being viewed by another person, they are really a terrible person or they're really different or the opposite of what they're trying to portray and we do it constantly all day yeah like, heavy heavy self-editors in real life are like the worst people at parties you know where someone is trying so hard to portray some version of themselves that they think other people will like or will be impressed by really make for not fun party guests but you have someone that's you know usually they're the crazy person and you might not like them because they're too off the wall crazy, but at least you get to like try out a couple. <laughs> you're trying out a couple personalities, see who people like, and you know <laughs> it's, you're gonna hit more. I I kind of had some of those thoughts when when uh, Logan was working with us, and I knew him since you know high school, so I felt like I felt safe basically in sh- sharing this part of our life, you know, and having him capture it. And then when you know we decided to bring Sarah on and he kind of mentioned it you know uh there was a part of me was like oh well right now we like each other Sarah likes us you know she's hung out like is is that gonna be in jeopardy she's gonna watch this footage and be like oh who the fuck are these guys um but she's still here you know (laughs) no not at all I mean yeah there's definitely uh times when it's like oh like Chris Gerber for example who I've only met one, met twice in person. Like I don't know him, right? Like yeah. he doesn't know me at all. But like I've spent a lot of time with him. <laughs> I think he's a really cool dude. <laughs> and I like missed him when we were working on episode. There were multiple episodes where he wasn't on those tours, and I was like, man, I kind of miss Chris Gerber. Yeah, like, that's funny because that's go? a meme on our in our whole crew is Mo, Mo saying like, I miss Quiz. Oh. <laughs> no, it's where's Quiz? Where's Quiz? Yeah, because Mo and Chris were like, you know. Practically a married couple, you know, even though they both had girlfriends at the time. Uh, they got so close and it became like gross how how kind of cute they were. And uh, when Chris stepped off because he was going to tour with his own band, Mo, or even even not, when like Chris was out at lunch or something, if Mo would be on the radio, hey, anybody seen Chris lately? <laughs> and so, so that became the running joke. It was Mo, Mo's going, where's Chris? Where's Chris? I miss Chris. And then, and then when we were, we were in Seattle, it was a legitimate, where's Chris? Like, Where oh, yeah, he just, he was going to miss Buscall. <laughs> no, you just got lost. <laughs> you just got lost in the middle of this small town. <laughs> Uh, but yeah with you guys I didn't know you very well either but I think I was watching all this footage and 
spending actual real life time with you at the same time is getting to know you guys. So, so, so we could uh, compensate. Yeah, we could but compensate I mean, for the like negative Logan, qualities. But like Logan said, like it wasn't. I can understand from your your position yeah. that being pretty feeling very very vulnerable but i mean if anything you should be like yeah it's well, all yeah, good there's a <laughs> there's, there's a, a scene coming up in the final episode episode eight which you know we were always talking about but colton had to um do the dailies and choose selects for that and we'd kind of forgotten about that that it was on the hard drive and he was he was watching that and he had his headphones on and he was logging every clip he logged every clip and wrote you know wrote it down and he was also still kind of getting to know us he'd been on tour with us mm-hmm. but he's still you know when you're a new crew member on tour you don't get to see um the band in in every situation so now he's working on us doing these dailies he has his headphones on we're in the room and this like hour long basically argument happens and he has to kind of control what he's watching and and control his laughs and control his his self while we're all in the same room and he got a real sense of like who we are at different times you know yeah. in the day that that last bit of bus call which was may 2017 where we had been with the camera so much that we kind of just said fuck it whatever record anything it gets pretty dark but um <laughs> Yeah, Colton, thanks for powering through that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, Let's edit this one now and just say this is the end. Yeah. My only friend. My only friend, the end. Thank you, uh, Logan and Sarah, for coming on and for all your hard work on, on Bus Call. Um, we'll put links up to um, some of the other stuff that they've worked on and as well as uh, some photos. We'll find, go some, find, I'm going to see if I can find my editing power couple photo <laughs> just to show what they were, uh, you know, powering through. So uh, watch Bus Call. Tell your friends about this podcast. Like I say every week, you know, word of mouth is the best way. Uh, well, it's not the best way, but it is a very good way <laughs> to share this because I don't watch shit. I don't listen to stuff. If somebody tweets about it, generally, um, if somebody tells me in person, you've got to watch this or, you know, you've got to listen to this. That's, you know, I hear that enough times and I go and watch it. So that's what we need. We need you guys to convince your friends who aren't watching this to watch it and grow a grassroots audience. Uh, and also Patreon. Oh, yeah, um, Patreon. Visit us, patreon.com slash congos to get ad-free version of the podcast and also some exclusive content occasionally. It's only $2 a month. If you think about that, that is basically probably what you spend on half a cup of coffee every day. So $2 a month helps us keep this podcast going. And um, when Colton gets back, which should be in a, a week or two, his crackers. Yeah, his, his daily diet of crackers. Mm-hmm.